I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles uh, today to John chapter uh, 16. John chapter 16, we're doing a verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John. And as we continue in our study of this book, we come uh, this morning to John chapter uh, 16, verse 5. And my goal today is to cover uh, verses 5 through 15. And the title of the message this morning is The Promise of the Spirit. The Promise of the Spirit. Back in 1976, a Riverside teenager boarded a public transit bus at the Tyler Mall with two of his friends. A stranger boarded the bus at the same time and took a seat next to this teenager. The teenager thought it was odd for this stranger to sit right next to him, given the fact that the bus was about 95% empty and all the other seats were available. On top of that, this teenager noticed that the young man who sat next to him seemed uncomfortable and nervous and kind of sweaty. After a couple minutes of awkward silence, the stranger said to the teenager beside him, Did you know that God loves you? The teenager said, no, I did not know that. The guy seated next to him said, yes, he does. And here's some Bible verses that that show you that. And so he showed him John 3, 16 from the Bible and another passage of scripture that talked about God's love. And interestingly, the conversation between the two of them did not get much farther than that. At the very next stop, the nervous evangelist bolted off the bus and disappeared, probably not feeling like the world's greatest evangelist. But the teenager sitting on the bus was left thinking about what this stranger had said to him. And this teenager's friend who was seated behind him on the bus said to him, you didn't know that God loves you? And the teen said, no. And his friend said to him, you got to go to church to hear stuff like that. So the next day, this young man attended a church on Iowa Avenue and began attending that church's youth group. That youth group at the time was studying through the book of Revelation, and this teen was hooked right away. The youth pastor's family gave him a Bible with some verses Uh, underline in that Bible, and this young man read those verses every day thereafter. Three months later, this teenager prayed to receive Jesus Christ as his personal Savior and asked Jesus to save him from his sins. You and I owe a lot to that nervous evangelist on the bus who summoned the courage to ask this Riverside teen the question, did you know that God loves you? For the teen that he posed that question to was Paul Kumamoto, who went on to become a youth pastor and has been a blessing to this church body over the last 40 plus years. We also, amen. We also owe a lot to that church on Iowa Avenue, Riverside Bible Church, and the youth group that was there. But even more, you and I should thank 
God, the Holy Spirit, for doing the work that he did in Kumi's heart in bringing him to a recognition of his sins and to belief in Jesus Christ as his Savior from sin. And it's the Holy Spirit that we're going to be talking about in our passage this morning. The passage we're looking at today is the fourth and the final passage, if you are counting, in which Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit on this final night before his death. And out of the four passages that we see uh, in this section of the Gospel of John, this passage is the fullest of them all and has the most to reveal to us. In the passage that we looked at last Sunday, we saw how Jesus was warning his disciples about the hostility that they could expect from the world in the days that lay ahead of them. But he also encouraged them with the wonderful promise that he would send to them the Holy Spirit who would be their helper. And he promised them that the Spirit would testify about him, Jesus, and he promised them that they, the disciples, would be testifying about Jesus as well in the days to come. And with this twofold promise in their hearts, the disciples have actually now heard enough to be excited about testifying of Jesus before the world, knowing that as they testify to the world the truth about Jesus, the Holy Spirit would be testifying through them and alongside of them the truth about salvation through Jesus Christ. Well, in our passage today, Jesus now wants to expand on what he has already revealed about the Holy Spirit for the encouragement of his disciples who need the encouragement right now. And the passage we're going to look at today is full of promise, wonderful promise. In fact, if you have the hard copy of the notes with you this morning, the way we're going to break down our study of this text is we're going to observe five promises, five promises about the spirit that Jesus gives to encourage his disciples regarding the ministry of the spirit after his departure. Five promises. And the first of these promises, we can word it this way. The Holy Spirit will come to you as your helper. The Holy Spirit will come to you as your helper. Look at verse 5, where Jesus says to his disciples, But now I am going to him who sent me, that's the Father, and none of you ask me, where are you going? Now let's stop right there for a second, because at first blush, this may seem very odd, of a complaint for Jesus to utter at this point, given the fact that earlier on this very evening in John thirteen thirty six, Peter asked Jesus this exact question, saying to him, Lord, where are you going? In chapter 13, verse 36. However, if you were to read the context of that question by Peter, you would realize that his question in that earlier moment 
was more of a voicing of protest than a seeking for information about Jesus' destination. In fact, imagine that you are with a dear friend in a scary and intimidating place, and that friend starts to walk away from you, leaving you alone in this scary and intimidating place. You might say to them, hey, where are you going? You might ask that question, but you wouldn't be asking them that question because you're wanting to learn about their destination. Your question would be more of a protest against the fact that they're walking away from you and not bringing you with them. You'll notice again in John chapter 14, um, Jesus, so that, that was the spirit of Peter's question back in chapter 13. But then again in chapter 14, Jesus told his disciples that he was going to prepare a place for them in his father's house. And in verse 5 of John chapter 14, Thomas replied and said, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? So Thomas admittedly confesses that he doesn't know where Jesus is going, but he doesn't seem curious to know more about Jesus' destination. He just wants to know how to get wherever Jesus is going to. He wants to know the path to that place. So when Jesus says here in John 16, 5, but now I am going to him who sent me and none of you like right now are asking me, where are you going? Jesus in saying this is faulting his disciples for not showing more of a happy interest in where he is going and manifesting a genuine desire to learn more about his destination. In fact, in John 14, 28, Jesus had said to his disciples, if you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to my father. But the disciples are showing no joyful interest in Jesus' destination because they're lost in their own grief over the fact that Jesus is departing from them. In fact, observe what Jesus says to them in verse six. He says, but because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. As they, the disciples are listening to Jesus talk about his departure from them. They in the moment are only seeing what they're going to be losing and not what Jesus is going to be gaining and not what they're going to be gaining from his departure as well. So Jesus looks at them and says, look at the text, sorrow has filled your heart. They're sorrowful about the fact that Jesus will be leaving them alone to face a world without him that he has just told them is going to hate them and persecute them and make them outcast and even kill them. And persecute them. What a dangerous world for Jesus to now leave and abandon them to face without him. And with their hearts being filled with sorrow, what does it mean for something to be filled? It means to be filled up to the full to where there's no room for anything else. 
which means that their hearts are now filled with sorrow to where there's no room in their hearts for anything else, like maybe a genuine curiosity about Jesus' destination or even an appreciation of the fact that he is going away from them for their own advantage or their own ultimate good. And by the way, all of us have to be careful about this when it comes to sorrow. It is good and wholesome for us to grieve and to experience sorrow and to lament our sufferings, but we must be careful when doing that not to allow our hearts to become so filled with sorrow that there is no room in our hearts for anything else like truth that we can rejoice in. And Jesus is going to endeavor here to insert truth into the full hearts of his disciples that are filled with sorrow. In fact, look at verse seven, where Jesus says to them, but I tell you the truth. He's kind of shaking them a bit and saying, listen to me. I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus wants his disciples to know that they have something to rejoice about right now in this moment of sorrow. And that is the fact that it is to their advantage that he's going away from them to his father in heaven so that on the other side of his completed work of dying on the cross and being raised from the dead and ascending to his father, he will be able to send them the spirit, the Holy Spirit, who will be their helper who will come alongside of them and give to them the help that they need in carrying out the mission that Jesus is giving to them. And Jesus says here, if I go, I will send him to you. And if the disciples truly were listening and understanding this promise of Jesus, they would not be so filled with sorrow in this moment. They would be excited that Jesus will be sending his Holy Spirit to them to be their helper and to assist them in their mission of preaching the message of salvation to the world. Well, how will the Spirit function as their helper in this mission? This leads us to the second promise about the Spirit that Jesus gives to encourage his disciples regarding the ministry of the Spirit after his departure. Promise number two, fill in the blank. The Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning what? Sin. In verse eight, Jesus speaks of the Holy Spirit to his disciples. And he says, look at this, verse eight. And he, the Holy Spirit, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. The Greek word that is translated convict here means to reprove or even rebuke or to show someone their fault. In a courtroom setting, this word means to cross-examine someone for the purpose of proving their guilt before the law. 
But this word can also be used to speak of convincing a person of their own guilt in a matter, bringing them to the shame-inducing realization that they are guilty of being wrong about something that they have believed or done. And I would agree with most commentators who would say that both of these ideas are involved here in this passage. The Holy Spirit will play the role in the days to come of laying bare the world's sin and showing all people to be guilty before God. But graciously, in the case of many, the Spirit will awaken in them a consciousness of their guilt and lead them to true repentance. And Jesus is promising here that the Spirit will bring men and women to the shame-inducing realization that they have been wrong about three things, sin and righteousness and judgment. By the way, isn't it interesting that the Spirit will focus on these three things? What's the three things that the world least likes to hear about? Sin, righteousness, and judgment. Yet this is exactly what the Spirit will be working to convict the world of. And the first of these things is sin. Observe what Jesus speaks in verse 9 where he says that the Spirit will convict the world, look at verse 9, concerning sin because they do not believe in me. The word that is translated sin here is the word that speaks of rebellious violations of God's will. This word means to miss the mark. We've all heard that definition, to miss the mark, but not in the sense that we often think. This word does not simply speak of aiming at a target, yet missing the bullseye of that target by a little bit, though we tried. No, sin happens when God puts a target in front of us and tells us to aim at that target, and we respond... By saying, I don't like that target, and we turn in the opposite direction, and we aim at a different target altogether. So yeah, we miss the mark. We miss God's target because we were aiming at a completely different target of our own choosing. We sinned. In this way, we all have sinned, and one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world of sin. And Jesus says here in verse 9, as you look at the verse, that the reason that the world needs convicting concerning sin is because they don't believe in Jesus. In other words, their lack of belief in Jesus is a manifestation of their sin problem. And it is, in fact, their greatest sin. Of all the sins that a person can commit, a refusal to believe in God's Son, a refusal to believe in the beautiful Jesus is their most grievous sin of all. In fact, it's the one sin that will result in a person 
being damned forever if it is never repented of. And unbelief in Jesus is the mother of all other sins. For sin always results from a failure to trust, to trust God, to trust God's Son, Jesus Christ. So the Spirit will do His work of convicting people that their fundamental problem is a sin problem and that their unbelief in Jesus is actually their most revealing sin of all. And it's the sin that keeps them bound by the guilt of all of their other sin. This is the work that the Spirit does. I don't need to tell you that the world does not like to talk about the topic of sin. And they don't like the way we Christians talk about the subject of sin, right? In his book, The God Delusion, the anti-theist Richard Dawkins says, and I quote, the Christian focus is overwhelmingly on sin, 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 sin. What a nasty little preoccupation to have dominating your life, unquote. The irony is that Richard Dawkins is overwhelmingly focused on how wrong, wrong, wrong everyone is who doesn't think the way he does. What a nasty preoccupation to have dominating one's life. To be sure, the world does not like to talk about sin being its fundamental problem. But the role of the Spirit is actually to wake people up to the reality of their sin so that he can then point them to Jesus who can rescue them from their sin. Actually, the Christian message is that the non-believer's incessant preoccupation is already with their sin. But Jesus came to deliver sinners from that preoccupation and give them a whole new preoccupation in life. And that new preoccupation is him and his love and his grace. Think about it. Is this not what the Spirit did in your own life, helping you to see the reality and the magnitude of, of your sin and then pointing you to the Savior who came to save you from your sin through his death on the cross. Does the Holy Spirit not to this day in your life as a believer convict you of your sin while continuing to ever point you to Jesus as the answer to your sin problem? We live in a day when the language of sin has actually been removed from people's vocabulary and replaced with therapeutic language. But even secular observers are noticing how the removal of sin from our vocabulary has not made us better people. It's not made us more enlightened, but actually less enlightened and more neurotic than ever Otto Rank, a Brazilian psychologist, says, and I quote, 
the modern person suffers from a consciousness of sin just as much as did his religious ancestor without believing in the conception of sin. This is precisely what makes him neurotic. He feels himself a sinner without the religious belief in sin for which he therefore needs a new rational explanation. You take away the language of sin and people know something's wrong with me and you've taken away from them the vocabulary to label what is wrong with them. Along these same lines, the cultural anthropologist Ernest Becker says that the plight of the modern person is that, and I quote, he is a sinner with no word for it, unquote. And this is why the Holy Spirit in his omniscient wisdom endeavors to convict the world of sin. The world will do its best to counter that effort in various ways, but everyone whom the Spirit truly saves will experience the Spirit of God bringing them to moments of heartfelt conviction about their sin so that they can then with hope repent of their sin and look to Christ to save them from their sin. Turns out, though, that the Spirit doesn't just convict the world of its sin, but of something else. And this leads us to the third promise about the Spirit that Jesus gives to encourage his disciples regarding the ministry of the Spirit after his departure. Number three, the Spirit will convict the world concerning what? Righteousness. The Spirit will convict the world concerning righteousness. In verse 9, we learn that the Spirit will convict the world concerning sin. Now look at verse 10. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. In other words, the Spirit will bring the world to the shame-inducing realization that they have been wrong on this important matter of righteousness. How so? Well, the world would prefer to pursue its own righteousness and justify itself before God, right? But this is the way of the fool in the book of Proverbs who is righteous in his own eyes. The Holy Spirit's role is to confront us and to cross-examine us and to strip us of our pretensions of righteousness and to humble us and show us that we are not all that we think we are. In fact, it was the Holy Spirit who inspired the statement of Isaiah in Isaiah 64, 6. All our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. It is the Spirit who inspired the Apostle Paul to say in Romans 3, there is none righteous, not even one. It is the Spirit speaking through Jesus who said to the Jews in Matthew 5, 
verse 20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And it is the Spirit who points people to Jesus' perfect righteousness and tells us that it is His righteousness that we most need. Yet ironically, the very world that is unrighteous looked at Jesus, the righteous one, and pronounced Jesus as unrighteous and condemned him to death upon a cross as a criminal. But what happened next? God the Father raised Jesus from the dead and ascended Jesus to his own right hand bringing Jesus to himself to honor him, thereby contradicting the verdict of the world and pronouncing Jesus as righteous and completely acceptable to him. This is why it is in verse 10 that Jesus said, look at the verse again, that the spirit will convict the world, look at this, concerning righteousness because I go to the father and you no longer see me. You say, what does him going to the Father have to do with righteousness? Well, back in in John 14, verse 6, Jesus made the statement, no one comes to the Father except through me. So apart from Jesus, here's the truth. No one comes to the Father, period. Why is it that no one comes to the Father on their own? Because there's none righteous, not even one. Yet here is Jesus reaching the end of his life and saying, I go to the Father because he lived a perfectly righteous life and he never sinned even once in his deeds or in his thoughts or in his attitudes. There was not even a single sin of omission that Jesus was ever guilty of throughout his life on earth. There was never something that the father wanted him to do that he failed to do. So Jesus lives a perfectly righteous life and then goes to the cross and the father raises him from the dead and then warmly receives Jesus on the basis of his own righteousness. Let's not forget how astonishing this is that Jesus would go to the father Again, in John 14, 6, Jesus said, no one comes to the Father, but that's exactly what Jesus did because of the righteousness of his life. And his righteousness is so great that anyone who wants to and who believes in him can come to that same Father through him and his righteousness also. When Jesus points out that his disciples will no longer see him in verse 10, his point is that while he, Jesus, was on earth, it was his mission to convict the world concerning righteousness. But now that he's going to his Father in heaven, this task is going to be taken over by the Holy Spirit who will now make it his aim to convict the world concerning how wrong it has been when it comes to this matter of righteousness. This matter of righteousness is not some merely religious 
matter that only spiritual religious people care about. Any casual observer could see that everyone in the world is very concerned about righteousness. This is why we are so quick to defend ourselves when someone accuses us of a wrongdoing. This is why we make excuses and why we rationalize our wrongdoing in order to preserve some semblance of self-righteousness. This is why we love it when we hear the news of someone else who has failed in some significant way because it makes us feel more righteous by comparison. This is why we love to point out and talk about and discuss the failings of other people because it makes us feel righteous compared to those whose faults we are pointing out. This is why we prefer certain cable news programs that show repeatedly how stupid and foolish and evil people on the other side of the political spectrum are because it makes us feel so righteous by comparison. The truth is that all these things are appealing to us because they are a part of our ingrained effort to drown out the voice of the Holy Spirit in our hearts who is telling us that our own righteousness is as filthy rags before God. As I've said to you guys before, I believe that the besetting sin of our generation is the sin of self-righteousness. But someone in whose heart the Spirit has had his way has been stripped of their self-righteousness and believed in Jesus as the righteous one. And they've allowed themselves to be dressed in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus, which is perfect in every way. Such people have not just repented of their sins, they've repented also of their righteousness. And they have been led to say with the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3, I want to be found in Jesus, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is obtained through faith in Christ Jesus. So the world convicts, or the Spirit convicts the world concerning sin and righteousness. But that's not all he does. This leads us to the fourth promise about the Spirit that Jesus gives to encourage his disciples regarding the ministry of the Spirit after his departure. Number four, the Spirit will convict the world concerning what? Judgment. The Spirit will convict the world concerning judgment. In verse 11, Jesus says, and concerning judgment. The Spirit will convict the world concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. The word translated judgment here speaks of a verdict that is rendered or a sentence that is actually executed. 
In this case, it means both. Jesus is telling us that the Spirit will convict the world concerning the truth of God's judgment upon us as sinners who deserve death for our sins against God. And the Spirit's work is to show us that our own judgments about ourselves are wrong and that God's judgments about us and our sin are right. But this word judgment also speaks of a sentence that is executed. And in this case, the person the sentence has been rendered upon is Satan. Jesus says, because the ruler of this world has been judged. And the judgment Jesus is talking about is the judgment of Satan, the devil, at the cross, where Jesus delivered the crushing blow to Satan's head, delivering the mortal blow that will culminate one day in Satan's ultimate demise. Satan initially thought that the cross was his own crowning moment of victory over Jesus, but it ended up being the place of his ultimate defeat under the feet of Jesus Christ. Notice how Jesus refers to Satan here as the ruler of this world. This means that embodied in God's judgment of Satan at the cross is a judgment of the people of the world who've allowed themselves to be ruled over by Satan to do his bidding. If a king gets defeated by an enemy, that means that everyone underneath the defeated king is caught up in that same defeat. So if the ruler of this world is judged at the cross, then so are all the people of the world who do Satan's bidding. And part of the Spirit's mission is to show people this truth, to show people that Satan is a loser. He's the ultimate loser. And anyone who remains on his side will be lost forever as well. You sum up these three things that the Spirit convicts the world of, and it is this. He convicts them regarding their state of sin before God. He convicts them regarding the filthiness of their own righteousness and regarding the judgment that is due them for their unrighteousness and sin. As the commentator Carl Laney says, and I quote, more convincing than Perry Mason, the Holy Spirit will break down arguments, validate the evidence, elicit confession, and bring the unbeliever to conviction before the Almighty, unquote, regarding sin and righteousness and judgment. But thankfully, the Spirit doesn't just do that and stop there. Otherwise, the Spirit would leave us all in a state of despair. It is on each of these three points that the Spirit testifies to us about Jesus, showing us how Jesus is the answer to our sin problem, providing us the atonement for our sins that we need at the cross. 
He shows us how Jesus is the answer to our unrighteousness problem, providing us the perfect righteousness that we need and finding that in him. And the Spirit shows us that Jesus is the answer to our judgment problem, taking our judgment upon himself at the cross so that we might, by believing in him, escape from the judgment of God that we deserve for our sins. The Spirit points out our problem with regard to sin and righteousness and judgment and then points incessantly to Jesus. I'll never forget several years ago witnessing to a woman who at the time of our conversation was self-righteous and unforgiving toward someone in her life. And I began walking her uh, through the Ten Commandments and amazingly, there was absolutely nothing special that I said. Uh, The Spirit showed up and just in a way that was marvelous for me to behold, just began showing her the depth and the magnitude of her sins before God, she began to see in a matter of minutes that she was a sinner and that she had no righteousness of her own and that God's judgment upon her was just. And with tears in her eyes, she looked at me and said, I guess there's no hope for me then, is there? And it was then my privilege to tell this woman about Jesus. And then upon telling her about how Christ died on the cross for her sins, lived the perfectly righteous life she failed to live, giving her the atonement that she needs if she would believe in him. I got to speak of Jesus to this woman and then hear her passionately pray to receive Jesus Christ as her savior. And then immediately upon finishing her prayer, She reached out her hand and extended forgiveness to the person that she had been so bitter against. And it happened in minutes. It doesn't always happen that fast, but it did on that occasion. I saw it with my own eyes. The Holy Spirit convicted this woman of sin and of righteousness and of judgment and at the same time pointed her to Jesus and testified to her of Christ and brought her to faith in Jesus Christ. And this is what the Spirit has done in all of us who believe in Jesus and have experienced salvation through him. And this is what the Spirit desires to do through us as we testify of Christ to others Notice how back in John chapter 15, verse 26, Jesus speaks of the Spirit coming to his disciples and testifying of Christ. And then Jesus, in the very next verse, tells his disciples how they, the disciples, will also testify in the next verse about Christ. And now here he speaks about how the Spirit will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And what Jesus is communicating is that this work of the Holy Spirit will be done through his disciples and through us. And alongside 
of them and us as we testify of Christ to the world. The Spirit wants to work through you as a believer and alongside of you as you testify of Christ using your gospel proclamation to be the means through which he does his convicting work and brings the lost to saving faith in him. Now for Jesus' disciples to do this, they're going to need a greater understanding than what they have now. And this leads us to the fifth and the final promise about the spirit that Jesus gives to encourage his disciples regarding the ministry of the spirit after his departure. Number five, promise number five, the Holy Spirit will guide you into all the truth. The Holy Spirit will guide you into all the truth. Observe what Jesus says in verse 12. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. There's a lot that Jesus is saying to his disciples in these chapters that we have been studying, but there's a whole lot more that he wants to say to them. And he tells them so here, but he says, you can't bear them now. What are some of the things that he would want to say to them? Well, he could tell them specifically about how he's going to be arrested and mocked and beaten and scourged and crucified and then raised from the dead. We actually learn from the other gospel accounts that Jesus did speak about these types of things to his disciples, but they didn't hear what he said because they couldn't bear it. Jesus could in this moment talk to them about the specific blessings that will come to the world and to them through his death and resurrection, but they didn't have the categories in their heads to process those delicious details just yet. Jesus could talk to them about some of the specifics of the role that they're going to be playing in leading the church on the day of Pentecost and then going forward from there. But they couldn't have even begun to process all of that just yet. But a day is coming when they will be able to bear the fullness of what is in his heart that he would love to say to them. Look at verse 13, where Jesus says, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. Notice how Jesus speaks of the spirit of truth, saying he will guide you into all the truth. Notice those words, all the truth. Meaning all the truth they need to know in order to teach people the whole counsel of God that is centered on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. As the commentator William Hendrickson says, the Holy Spirit never rides a hobby horse. He never stresses one point of doctrine at the expense of all the others. No, he guides us into all the truth that we need to know about God and about ourselves and about the salvation we need and about our mission in the world. 
Here in verse 13, Jesus says that the Spirit will not just speak on his own initiative, but he's going to speak what he hears the Father saying to him. That sounds a lot like Jesus and the way he operated. And Jesus promises here that the Spirit will disclose to you what is to come. In other words, the days of ministry that lie ahead for them, the days of battle and hardship that lie ahead for them, as well as what lies ahead for them and all of us in the age to come. As for what the Spirit will do as he guides and speaks, Jesus says in verse 14, he will glorify me for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. Jesus is assuring his disciples here that he will continue speaking to them through the Spirit in the days to come, whom he says will take of mine and disclose it to you. This is how the Spirit will glorify Jesus and magnify the reputation of Jesus by taking what belongs to Jesus and giving it to his disciples and giving it to you and to me. In other words, Jesus wants to be glorified by, by what he gives to us through the Spirit, not by what he takes from us. In verse 15, Jesus says to his disciples, all things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said to you that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. So essentially everything the Spirit discloses is ultimately from the Father and from Jesus. And thankfully, the Father is happy to share all that is His with Jesus. And Jesus, thankfully, is happy to share all that is His with His disciples and with you and me. One of the earliest words that a child learns to speak is the word mine right? As they clutch what is theirs and hold it away from someone who they fear is going to take it away from them. We see the word mine here in verse 15 twice. When the father says mine, he's holding out what is his. He's saying mine and he's holding it out and giving it to Jesus And then Jesus, in turn, gives us his spirit, whose job it is to take what Jesus calls mine and give it freely to us. In other words, it is through the spirit that Jesus says to you and to me who believe in him, what is mine is yours. So the Holy Spirit is himself a gift to us, but he is a gift that keeps on giving, serving as the agent through which Jesus and the Father impart all that is theirs to us. As we wrap up this morning, let's be thankful for the Holy Spirit that God has given to us to indwell us from the day that we were saved and believed in him to this very day. And let's realize that in having the spirit as we do, we are actually in a more advantaged position than Jesus' disciples were when they were on the earth in the flesh with Jesus. 
And let's be reminded that the Spirit's mission is always to testify of Christ and to glorify Christ, not himself. I've sometimes heard Christians complaining that other Christians don't talk enough about the Holy Spirit. The truth is we should talk about the Holy Spirit, and we're talking about him today. Jesus talks about the Spirit in John 14 and 15 and 16. But let's never forget that the Spirit testifies of Christ and glorifies him. So as long as we are focused on Christ and testifying of Christ to the world, our ministry will always be in perfect alignment with the Holy Spirit and have his power. Amen. And let's also appreciate how what Jesus promises here in this passage started being fulfilled on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. On that day, the Spirit was poured out upon Jesus' disciples just as Jesus promised that he would. And Peter, long story short, finds himself standing before a crowd of thousands of people. And what does Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, immediately do? He testifies about Jesus to them, telling them about how Jesus was approved of God as God's Messiah, and yet how they crucified Jesus with wicked hands, yet how God raised him from the dead and ascended Jesus to his own right hand, making him the Lord of all. This very Jesus, Peter says, whom you crucified. Moments earlier, these people that he's talking to had thought that they had done a good thing in crucifying Christ. But now they suddenly had the terrible conviction that the crucifixion of Christ was the greatest crime in history and that their sin had caused it. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 37, the text tells us that when they who were listening to Peter, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Who caused this deep conviction and piercing of heart? How did that happen? The Holy Spirit did that. Peter didn't observe that and go, man, I must have preached an awesome sermon. I'm amazing. No, he knew the Spirit did this. And it was the Holy Spirit who brought 3,000 of them to faith in Jesus Christ on that very day. Faith in this one who had been crucified just a month and a half prior. And by the way, let's not lose sight of what a wonder it is that hundreds of millions of people over the last 2,000 years have come to put their trust for all eternity in a crucified Jewish criminal. How in the world does that happen? Who accomplished that feat it's the Holy Spirit. No human 
could accomplish that. Also, let's be encouraged in this promise from Jesus that the Holy Spirit is the one who convicts of sin and righteousness and judgment. You and I definitely, as we've seen, have a role to play in that as we proclaim Christ to others. But you'll notice in this passage that Jesus doesn't command us here to convict people. He doesn't look at his disciples and us and say, I command you to convict people of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. No, he simply ultimately tells us to testify about him and then assures us that the spirit will do the work of convicting people of sin and righteousness and judgment as we do that. What Jesus is teaching us here helps us to know our our place and as we minister to people and to be more at peace with God's work in the hearts of those that we are ministering Christ to. We can pray and we can speak God's word to the people that we minister to, but we must leave it to the spirit to do the work that only the spirit can do. The work of convicting of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. In fact, Jesus kind of models this in our passage when he says to his disciples that, man, I got much more to say to you, but you can't bear it now. And so he wanted to wait for the spirit to come in order to show certain things to his disciples. Learning from Jesus' example, we realize that we do our part in testifying about him to others, but we also allow room for the spirit and even wait for him to do the work that only he can do. Finally, I I just ask you this morning, have you allowed the spirit to convict you of sin and of righteousness and of judgment? Have you allowed the spirit to expose your sin as sin? Have you allowed him to convict you of the shallowness of your own righteousness and of your need for Christ's righteousness? Have you allowed the Holy Spirit to convict you about how wrong your own self-judgments have been and how right God's judgments are? Have you allowed the Spirit to show you your own worthiness of God's judgment, but how Christ bore that judgment on the cross so that you don't have to bear that judgment? Have you listened to the Spirit, even in this message, as he has testified to you about Jesus, who can be your atonement, your righteousness, and the one who delivers you from God's judgment? Have you believed in Jesus? Are you looking to him to be your savior? If you have never done that, I urge you to do that today. Believe in Jesus and call upon his name and find out for yourself that he is the eternally satisfying answer to your sin problem and your righteous problem and your judgment problem.
problem. Please give heed to the voice of the Spirit today and look to Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son and for all that he accomplished when he was on this earth and for all that he taught, such as in this passage today. The problem with some, Lord, is that they resist the workings of your spirit such that they don't see their sin, their self-righteousness, and they don't face squarely the reality of the judgment they deserve. And so they see no need to look to you, Lord Jesus. But then there are those who may to some degree see their sin and see their self-righteousness and the judgment they deserve, but they don't listen to your spirit as he testifies to them of Jesus who is strong enough, who is mighty enough, and who is gracious and loving enough to give them atonement for their sins and perfect righteousness to replace their own filthy self-righteousness and to absorb the judgment they deserve at the cross so that they can be free of such judgment. On whatever front it may be, Lord, I'm asking you that you would look upon such souls with mercy and that your spirit would do his full work of convicting them and testifying to them of Jesus and that they would come to genuine faith today and be able to look to you, Lord Jesus, and find the answer to their sin problem and their righteousness problem and their judgment problem. And help us as your people, Lord, to be faithful, to testify of you as we've, we may feel like we're not very good evangelists and there are other people who are way better at it. And I am sure the guy who encountered Kumi on the bus back in 1976, to this day, he has no idea how you used him. And he almost certainly got off that bus feeling like a failure. And yet, you've just done an amazing thing. Help us to just put ourselves at your disposal, Lord, and to be willing to testify of you and the strength that you give us and just leave the results to you. Trusting that your spirit will work through us and alongside of us and he will convict those whom he has chosen to convict of sin 
and righteousness and judgment and to bring them to a saving knowledge of you, Lord Jesus. So we commit ourselves to you, Lord, with this end in mind and ask that you would make us a congregation of testifiers of Jesus, emboldened in our task, knowing of what the Holy Spirit will do through us and alongside of us as we give testimony to you. We ask all of these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said,